0: Hello, I'm Michael Heyman and you're listening to Changemakers. Now my guest today is Joseph Galliano, the co-founder and CEO of Queer Britain, the charity working to complete the nation's family tree by establishing the UK's first LGBTQ museum. Set to be the largest of its kind in the world, the museum will reflect every race, gender and orientation under the LGBTQ plus umbrella in a bid to preserve histories that have been ignored or destroyed, Whereas as Joe says, before it's too late. A place to tell the stories of the people that mattered in the fight for equality while offering a shared space to come together and learn more. Joe, welcome to Changemakers. Tell us a little bit more about Queer Britain. Thank you, Michael.
1: Well, Queer Britain is a uh, charity working to make sure that LGBTQ plus people's um place in the culture is, is really restored to where it should be. Um, we've got this kind of missing tooth in the British cultural landscape, um, which is very patchily filled in. And we want to make sure that we're uplifting LGBTQ plus people's stories and queer mm. people's stories for everybody, because these stories aren't just about LGBTQ
0: plus people. They are for everybody and about everybody, because we're all part of that same family. Well, I want to get on to, because I love, I love this phrase, like completing the nation's family tree. But before we do that, that, let's go into the identity. Queer Britain, reclaiming a word that many would say has got derogatory connotations. Tell us a little bit about the thinking of the queer in Queer Britain. Well, that's exactly right, isn't it? And,
1: and, and actually, it, it is wanting to be part of that conversation, Wanting to be part of taking that last bit of sting, which is particularly held by um some older people who really were kicked around with that word um and actually saying actually it's a word of that can be uh celebrated and because we by taking back ownership of it, it's also the most inclusive word under the l g b t q plus moniker because um you know we couldn't call ourselves uh, lesbian Britain <laughs> we couldn't call ourselves transgender Britain
0: um, but there's this place for everybody under the sort of plasticity of queer. but but it's a word that I mean you know I, I think you and I are roughly the same vintage age-wise but but I mean queer was a word that growing up was was seen as cruel wicked nasty hurtful yet today it feels like it has been totally changed in terms of its role in identity. And, and I guess yeah. you're reflecting that in it with the new museum.
1: Well, it's, it's interesting the way that language kind of changes and evolves and how it reflects different kinds of power bases. I mean, if we think about a word like gay, which was a word that we actively used uh, to create something positive about ourselves in terms of identity... You go into schools any time in the last sort of ten years, and that's become one of the most vicious uh, insults that could be thrown around, and one of the most hurtful insults that could be thrown around. And um, so, you know, whatever we try and do with language, it will change and evolve and mean different things at different times. And so, we embrace it in a in a celebratory way, and you know, also to try and try and create some of the space to really
0: take that hurt out of it and i think that's really important for us as you know mark gatis is the is the um second interview that accompanies this this episode and i would say that if i took one lesson from that interview it was listening to the master storyteller at work in terms of storytelling in the role of the new museum i mean is is that what it's about is it telling the story of our times
1: yeah, absolutely. And it's telling the stories of individuals and how those individuals uh sat within wider communities. But it's also like I mean, the, the thing that hasn't been recognized um widely enough is when we think about the oversized impact that LGBTQ plus people have had on society in relation to the uh their size in the population. Um it's quite extraordinary. You think we've we've shortened walls, we've launched world-class companies we've um probably had more impact on arts and culture than almost any other sets of communities and yet it's not really been celebrated in this uh broad way
0: within the sort of the heart of the mainstream and i suppose that that is a story of achievement and ambition but in the face of stigma well well let's get let's get on to the stigma in a moment but i also thought that there was there was something also quite gentle about this as well i mean i read something that you um, had said, which was that I'd really like the museum to be somewhere where if a young woman has just come out to her mother, they can go together so they can both understand a bit more about each other. I mean, it, it's a place of understanding as well, isn't it?
1: And and inclusion for all. You know, we want that mother to feel just as uh, welcome and just as much a part of the story as the daughter does.
0: Mm. I, mean, I, I mean, and quite often that... That coming out moment it is a moment that lives long in the memory, um, either as a, I mean, funny as a point of great pain, or or, or indeed points of, of, of great humour, as, as Mark Mark was telling me. But I mean, in terms of the museum and its role in that particular chapter in a person's life, t- tell us more.
1: Well, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, speaking as a as, a, as an enthusiastic homosexual of a certain age. You know, I know that whenever um, gay men, certainly uh, speaking as a gay man, whenever gay men get together, we, they they do tend to show each other their coming out battle scars. And that is the one you can guarantee people are going to talk about. What, what was what was yours, Jay? <laughs> well, like most gay men, it wasn't one thing or another. You know, it was a uh, it was about um, rupture with family uh, that was then mended. As a result of the coming out, um, it was um, coming out to my family, to my mother at sort of fifteen, and then going back into the closet in terror. um, Coming out again when I left for for university, um, again being a slow process of uh, a slow and nervous process. Um, But actually, it, it still happens sort of every day. You know, it happens when you have to make that decision in a shop when somebody said, oh, your wife's going to like that. <laughs> and you have to make that decision, right? Oh, do I, is this the right moment to out myself here? Because do I have a responsibility? Do I feel comfortable enough? Do you feel
0: comfortable? And do you feel the need to mould yourself to situations? Um, I mean, I, I read something that you said here, that people um, came out of their closets, now it's time to come out of the margins. In terms of, you know, the role um, of your life today in terms of the, I guess, the role of the new museum and how you hope it to help everyone really. I mean, tell us more about that journey, that mission, if you will, in terms of what might come next.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very keen of, a per, uh, of, uh, of holding a personal responsibility to, um, people who aren't as lucky as my life has been um you know okay i was a former editor of gay times magazine um i've worked in uh, senior business um lgbtq plus networking that sort of authentic leadership space piece and there's no going back in the closet for me and i have been as you know i'm as out as it's possible to be mm. I, had, I had a moment actually a few years back i was I was buying some, uh, buying a bottle of wine actually for to take back to my husband who'd been been working his ass off all day, and the woman in the shop said, "Oh, your wife will be pleased." I think I, as, I, as I mentioned there, and I had this, I had this kind of quite um, profound moment of crisis in that moment where I just felt like, "Well, do I um, do I say nothing?" Which feels like it's letting my other half down and uh and if and if i'm standing here flushing and uncertain how to respond to that without also you know being aggressive she didn't mean any harm by what she said but i also thought well what happens if there's a you know a 16 year old standing there who hasn't had the life journey i've had so, so what did you do well i just said that uh, I, I think i just held a bottle of wine up and went husband <laughs> And she, of course, was like, oh, well, enjoy. <laughs> like, but, you know, and it, and it, but it feels it felt like if I don't make that polite, good, humoured, quiet stand. Then I'm letting down the kids that come after us.
0: But presumably the museum is also a place for that lady that served you the bottle of wine to come and learn more about life as well. Is it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know,
1: and it's also, it's not just about that coming out moment. It's also, it's about that um, uh, uh, enabling people to see themselves reflected truthfully through history, um, allowing themselves to be, allowing ourselves to see uh, the achievements of, um, you know, this, this wildly diverse, broad sets of communities and, um, because, and, it, and it comes back to that thing, doesn't it, of, of um, to roll out the cliche of you can't be what you can't see. And we want to show how LGBTQ plus people have been intrinsically stitched through history and the impact we've made. And we want to really just sort of blow people's minds as to the possibilities of life.
0: Well, because well, I was thinking about it. I mean, as you, you've already mentioned, you've been editor of the Gay Times. I mean, you've been you've been a campaigner, but now you're a curator. Now you are creating a very physical space tell us a little bit more about about how it's going to work because obviously the, the job here is to create a museum with exhibitions with spaces devoted to different parts um of the story bring it to life for us the important thing is
1: is that if we think about the word queer there's a huge element of of plasticity in it the idea about queer is that we can be whoever we want to be and we can do whatever we want to do um now how that translates uh to our thinking in museum terms is you know yes some permanent exhibition space evolving but but you know relatively relatively fixed but um but also we want to make sure that we then have flexible space within that that we can bring in an endless series of guest curators and work with community co-curating as well so we want to be able to work with community groups and um, expert curators um, in order to say, right, here's the space, here's the resources. What's the story that needs to be told? What's the story that hasn't been told? Um, Is that something about um, medieval queer life? Has that been told? Is this about community activism in the 70s? Um, is this about the laws that the UK have exported around the the world via the empire? Um, Is this about um, anything, any number of stories that we could tell? And this is one of the um, beautiful things about working within an area um, that is undertold
0: and in some places is contested. And such a rich story to discover, though, presumably. Totally rich. A, a, a sort of a year in in modern memory that I know is 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 a pretty pivotal one in terms of how the museum came about because we've spoken about it. Is 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 this kind of lightning rod year of 1967 in terms of the legalization of homosexuality, in terms of generations that, that sort of felt this was the moment of emancipation, and those that those that are um, perhaps see that as a point in the dim and distant memory. Pick up the story for us in terms of how that has been a catalyst for for everything that you're doing now. Yeah, this
1: this this, this was central, really. Uh, I mean, I mean, first of all, one of the things that I'd I'd, I'd push back on and challenge is that um, you know that 1967 moment is much better thought of in terms of partial decriminalisation um, because you know the age of consent was different um and actually it, it, it led to a huge rise in the number of uh, people who were being prosecuted um so it's not as com- it's not as straightforward as to just say that it was it, it was a liberating moment you know it was a compromise it was but it's a pivotal it's a pivotal moment it was pivotal definitely definitely <laughs> definitely pivotal um should have happened 10 years earlier when the Wolfenden report was actually released in 1957 but <laughs> That's a whole other whole other issue.
0: Yeah, stick, because the reason why I want you to stick with that year is because of what it means to say a millennial generation, and what it might mean to a Gen X generation um, in terms of the, I, I guess, the poignancy and importance in your own journey of discovery, and and I guess how it may not feature um, for, for younger audiences in quite the same way. Yeah, well, this
1: this this moves us on very neatly, actually, to what the very first genesis was, which was um, in 2007, which was uh, the 40th anniversary of the partial decriminalisation. Um, I was uh, editor of Gay Times magazine at that point, and I was curious to know what kind of generational gap, generation gap had, had grown up. Um, so we did a very unscientific study, by um, bringing together, we brought four young uh, men who, you know, the, the law affected men, largely. Well, the law affected men um, and also Gay Times was pretty much a male audience. So that was the audience we were talking to. Um, four young men who hadn't yet been born in 1967 and four men who were already adults in 1967. Uh, just to foster a conversation, say, well, what do they know about each other's lives? Where, where are the gaps? And it turned out that f- two of the young men that we um, interviewed for this piece had never, w- weren't even aware that it had ever been illegal for them to love whoever they were going to love. Now, w- first of all, it seemed quite a, a shocking thing to hear um, that something so profound and so um, impactful had kind of been lost to history. And this actually speaks directly to what it is that we're trying to do, mm. which is to make sure that two people from you know fifty percent of those people don't lose what their roots were and what the her- heritage was. Now, the, the the thing that was interesting was that the, the the four older guys, their instant response was a little bit like they'd been slapped around the face. Uh, they were upset, hurt, hurt. Mm. You know it felt like some of the hurt from their earlier days had been kind of like magnified again but what we did is we we thought about this and actually we said the thing is firstly thank you didn't you do a brilliant job that these youngsters can get on with their lives without having to live on the barricades like you did and the second thing is is that if you know if you're not hearing about uh, your heritage Consistently within the popular culture, consistently in schools, consistently um, amongst your your peer groups or your family or friends, then how do you know what you don't know? Mm. And that's the problem: we don't. You can't ask the question if you don't know the question is there.
0: But is there also a sense that freedoms that have been hard fought for have to be defended and have to be looked after? Because of the risk, you might lose them again. My, my the,
1: the way I've always thought about this is that, you know, when change comes quickly, it can also vanish very, very quickly. And I, I, I like to, well, I, I sort of think about this as we live on a very thin meniscus of history. Um, and that meniscus could shatter at any moment. Does a meniscus shatter? Probably doesn't. Shatter,
0: but... I'm gonna take <laughs> your word for that one, Joe. I think <laughs>
1: <laughs> that could vanish very easily and we could very easily find ourselves under that water again, particularly with you know global rising populism. So it's a it's a very dangerous moment to find ourselves in mm. thinking the job's been done. But actually and actually what this comes to is a point where we can recognise the gains and then we can we have come to it with a better understanding of how to broaden that um, arc of inclusion as well.
0: But, but I, I think this also brings into full view the, the role of, of culture, the role of literature, the role of comedy. I mean, Mark uh, Gatiss did, a, um, I understand, an absolutely wonderful reading of uh what's called Mr Lucas's diaries of of a of what it was like to live in a now forgotten time i mean presumably this is a big part of the public education program of a museum which is to Absolutely. bring people along by actually Persuading and entertaining, as well as as part of that.
1: Well, and I think Mark was absolutely central in that entertaining piece because he really, really brought these diaries um, to life. And in fact, this, this this set of diaries it's an extraordinary record, uh, which are being moved into the Queer Britain collection. Millions of words from nineteen forty nine to two thousand and seven, when Mister Lucas uh, unfortunately was struck by a van and and, and departed. Um, and it, it it documents in hooterish detail what life was like for a gay man on the margins of society both um having this weird double life of um a very respectable civil service civil service job um mixed with Graphic detail about uh, the kind of underground clubs he was going to at night, who he was meeting at Piccadilly Circus, oh, which is apparently he...
0: it's very funny, isn't it? In terms of there are some, there are as poignant, but but some extremely humorous moments as possible. Oh, it,
1: it pivots from from heart-crushingly um, sad and and scary, um, Mr. Lucas being blackmailed um, uh, in a couple of couple of places, his, his house being turned over by. Um, people that he'd let in, you know, had had come home for sexual purposes and then ended up um, having some of his, his most precious um, things stolen. And he couldn't the police because he his fear was that he would be the one that would be prosecuted.
0: But I suppose if it serves as a bit of a, a warning from history, you now have an initiative that you're running called Open Letters, which is, I suppose, a message to the future in terms of, hopes and dreams about about what happens next. It's mean, a wonderful initiative, which is um on, on your um on your homepage, on, on the Queer Britain homepage in terms of the actual letters that that people are writing. Tell, tell us a little bit about about the campaign.
1: Well <laughs> originally uh that was a, it was a collaboration between um Queer Britain, uh Levi's and Post Office. Mm. Um originally it was intended that um with uh, Levi's we were going to be Travelling around the country, uh, touring, collecting people's oral histories. Uh, turns out it's not the best time to be doing that in the pandemic. Not, we didn't not a good year. <laughs> we didn't really want to be doing a super spreader event, if we could possibly avoid it. Um, and so once we started talking to the post office, um, realised there was a really nice way of doing this, of actually getting people just to connect to a piece of paper and share whatever was in their heads, and their hearts at this
0: Extraordinary moment in history, and, and you um, have, you have quite a few corporate backers, don't you? I mean, I mean, Sarchi yeah. and Sarchi, and others that are that, that, that have really got behind this. Coots and yeah, M C Sarchi, M C Sarchi. Excuse me, MSC Sarchi. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> no, no offense intended. But, but, <laughs> I, but I, you, if I didn't correct you, <laughs> but a, a lot of um, a, a lot of people w- w- often um sort of complain that that, that corporations don't get it. And, you know, I was reading um, a, um, a statistic that 72% of the LGBTQ plus community um, think the way that gay people are presented in advertising, for example, is, is tokenistic. Is this the big move forward? Is this, is, is, is the sort of the open letters idea, something which is more authentic, more real, more true to the experience?
1: Well, I mean, I wouldn't have thought of that as a, you know, the open letter thing, I wouldn't have thought of in, in terms of uh, marketing.
0: Um, you have but, got the Post Office and Levi's and others, M and C, Archie involved.
1: Yeah, very much so. But I mean, that's very much about um, access. It's about networks. Um, it's about how do we amplify our voice, and it's also about you know where does power sit within um, the culture these days? You know, if we're going to pull off uh, a museum as ambitious as we're working on, then we have to have good relationships with companies who are showing the right signs and um you know we have to be
0: willing to bring them along with us mm. i mean you, you say you say where does power sit within the culture i mean do you feel empowered now i mean do you feel that 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 basically momentum is with you jay
1: yeah i feel like we've got the wind in our sails very much so and and actually um you know there are some of the key moments where you really you realize that you're really making some Some headway it's like okay Levi's are interested in working with us now they you know for for a charity of our age kind of extraordinary to develop a a partnership in that way we have a three-year partnership they've spent uh, good slabs of their marketing budget on us on Mm -hmm. lifting up what we're doing Uh, if I think about you know what is the signal what is a powerful signal about moving into the Uh, heart of the mainstream but keeping our own values well the queen's bank you know to 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 work with coots that has to suggest a sea change in um how lgbtq plus people are seen within the society and and what our place is and you know this is about us taking our place at the table
0: Mm -hmm. and 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 i suppose the the thing is is and and doing it in your own way, right? Because you know what I what I sort of feel about about queer Britain is it's, it, it is it is the sort of idea that you would expect um, to find um, in a country, I guess, that has got a good history of a certain amount of irreverence, a certain amount of individuality, a certain ability to actually, you know, create fun and identity. I mean, is there? I mean, it, it, I suppose. Is this as much celebration as it is education? Do you think
1: it's all of those things? Mm. It's celebration um, of uh, how much we've achieved and and who we are. Um, it's a celebration of the freedom of identity. You know, there's there's it's, it's quite often. I think you know there, there are people who argue against the ever expanding LGBTQ plus moniker. There are people who um, Want to be able to tell you what you can and can't be, mm. but actually, you know, the the, the most important thing is, and the most exciting thing is, oh, well, you can be anybody you want to be. But no
0: one gets to tell you that. And, and I suppose in 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 terms of the, the museum itself as well, is it, it's a story about relationships and love that you're, you're you're talking about. I mean, I love that. I love that your top quote is, and in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. I mean. Love is a hugely important part of 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 the story that you're you're about to tell with with the new museum. What, what's
1: what's wonderful is that there's there's very few museums um, that really cut so uh, that cut so directly to the heart of what it means to be human. You know, what does it really mean to be human? It's the relationships that we hold close. It's who do we love? Who do we bring into our lives? Uh, who, do, who are we drawn to? Who do we hold dear? Um,
0: and that's that's really the essence of it. Mm. And your top tip for listeners is don't let a fear of failure stop you acting. I'd rather fail than live with the knowledge that I hadn't tried for fear. Yeah. Explain that a little more to us.
1: I think that's very much about um, be prepared to make a mess of things. Be prepared, to, be prepared to be the person who has gone, well, we gave it a go. Never be, never be the person who says, I wish I had.
0: Mm. And I suppose this is a great entrepreneurial attitude for somebody who's involved in a startup, which is something that doesn't yet exist. But I suppose last question in terms of what people can expect and when? Tell us a little bit about the timescale, the location, the actual what we, you know, once this dreaded virus is gone, what what might we um, we uh, be able to expect?
1: Well, it's it's going to be uh, ramped up over the next sort of uh, over the next few years. So we're starting off with, uh, you know, we, we've been doing pop up exhibitions, developing the infrastructure, uh, good governance, getting fundraising up and running, all of the kind of nuts and bolts stuff that you need to do to get a really serious project off the ground um the in the in this first um in this first iteration it's been around pop-up exhibitions created in partnership um we're working towards 2022 opening a what we're calling a meanwhile space which is a A temporary experiment meanwhile
0: space I know it sounds great doesn't it (laughs) that'll uh, be a smaller version I'm presuming
1: (laughs) yeah it would be would be a much much smaller but kind of quick and dirty and somewhere we can bring community into donors into um, and experiment with different types of exhibitions and sort of get a get more experience about doing this kind of work as a team Uh, and then while we're doing that that then gives us a place to be able to um, bring supporters while we then fundraise for the big ticket item, uh, which we're working towards opening the doors on 2025-26. On I'm refreshing the business plan today, so this is right top of my mind at the moment.
0: And, and Okay, so 2026. And if somebody's listening to this, this interview in, in 2021 and thinking, oh, I might quite like to support that. I might like to try and get involved. I mean, in terms of the why this matters now, Last thought on what you'd like listeners to take away from this interview. I'd
1: like I'd like listeners to um, understand that whoever they are, they can be a part of this, whether they are LGBTQ or not, um, because this is about everybody's stories. Um, that there are ways that everybody can help, whether that's about helping. Uh, helping uh reach through their companies that they work for whether it's about joining our membership scheme and making a you know a small monthly donation of whatever you can they can afford whether it's about uh, you know the, the, the bigger ticket donors who are able to come and really make a, um, a a big impact on an individual level um it's about uh evangelizing for us um it's about getting involved in the research projects that we're doing. It's about coming to the exhibitions that we're working on. Um, It's about uh, signing up for the newsletter at uh,
0: www.queerbritain.org.uk. (laughs) Don't worry, we're going to give it a link, Jay. (laughs) But listen, unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Um, but, Jay, thank you so much um, for joining My us on, on Changemakers. And what a story it's been. And I suppose that is the message, isn't it? Be a part of it and, and, uh, and make the difference. But thanks to Jay Galliano, the creator and the curator of, of Queer Britain, Um, I think we've really heard such a wonderful story about celebrating lives through empowerment, creating a place as exciting as the people, stories and ideas um, it explores and completing that sense, that wonderful romantic sense of the nation's family tree um, by by empowering everyone um, to come out of the margins. Do join me next time on Changemakers.